In sixth grade, Trent Dalton's teacher was worried he was on the road to becoming the leader of an outlaw motorcycle gang. That was the truth. A lot of my mates from Bracken Ridge, a lot of them took paths down into smack and went to prison and a lot of really close friends of mine and, and very easy to go down that road because it felt like there was an invisible wall surrounding Bracken Ridge that was hard to break. Trent spent his early childhood living with his mum, whom he adored, and her boyfriend, who he loved too, but who also happened to be a heroin dealer. After that man went to prison, Trent and his three older brothers lived with their dad in a housing commission on Brisbane's north side. So for Trent, the road he was most likely to be on was one of factory work and too much bourbon. But that's not what happened at all. Trent Dalton is an award-winning journalist and novelist. And if you ask him when his life changed, he would answer without any hesitation, January 10, 2000. That day, January 10, 2000, represented my great second chance at life. I think about a world in which January 10, 2000 just becomes an ordinary day in my life and I, I spend it watching Oprah. You know, I would get really down and I would chase that feeling that that I, I could easily have chased, which is kind of totally just go drink and spend that day drinking or whatever, you know? And and then this is what I do. I start, before I start writing, I absolutely just think about the alternative and it fills me, it gives me chills. Like it absolutely fills me with electricity. We all have these life-changing days. Sometimes it's clear something big is happening that's putting us on a path to a different future. And sometimes it's those sliding doors moments too, those little choices that often seem inconsequential but actually change the course of our lives forever. Some cause just little ripples of change, and some turn into waves of transformation, crashing you onto an entirely different continent. That happened to me at the end of 2002 when I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. I was 18 and happened to meet some Australians touring the country in this band. A few months later, I'm visiting a few of them in London. That August, I find myself living in Stafford in Brisbane's north. And 19 years later, well, here I am living in the longest place I've ever called home in my life, Paddington. From Museum of Brisbane, you're listening to Where I Belong, a show that tells stories about fascinating and creative people shaped by Brisbane. I'm Wendy Love. On today's episode, Trent Dalton and the day that changed everything, what it took to get him there, and the rock star who helped him say the words he couldn't. Now, there are a couple of things that have to happen before Trent even gets to January 10, 2000. Number one, Don't follow the path that his sixth grade teacher thought he would, a life of crime and drugs, which wasn't a far-fetched possibility. He was living in Bracken Ridge at the time, a suburb on the north side of Brisbane, a place that in the 80s and 90s had a lot of sketchy stuff going on. People like rogues and dark sort of things were going on in that neighbourhood at that time. And and Bracken Ridge has come a long way. And I I always sort of want to let people know it's such an amazing place as well. But... Yeah, you know, there was domestic violence and alcoholism and drug addiction and um, desperation, just quiet desperation of of the Australians in the suburbs. So he and his three brothers are in this low-set housing commission unit with his dad, Noel Dalton. 
Noel is a voracious reader and drinker, and Trent gets this passion for books from him. But he's also growing up in a pretty wild house. They don't have much and live very simply. I'm talking one towel for five guys that only gets washed once a week. And if dad was on the terps, uh, it'd be just me cooking, like in probably my sort of senior year, I would cook a lot of, um, you know what I'd get, um, luncheon meat, you know, in that sort of, you'd wrap it like a log. You know, I think log. he's talking about meat. Devin or Spam. Market for like two bucks and it would last you like two weeks. I would get that and I'd cut it up and uh, and I'd fry that. I'd fry like two slabs of, of luncheon meat and then have like canned goods, like all the way with canned goods. And don't even get me started on my affinity for the Golden Circle cannery. So basically... He did get started on that topic. His dad worked at the cannery for a bit and those canned pineapple pieces were like a little slice of heaven. Anyway, Trent and his brothers would sometimes sort out their arguments with beer and brawls. There were holes in the fibro walls to prove it. But at the end of the day, he always loved them. There was Joel, who he calls King Arthur, the protector. Ben, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who guides him. And Jesse, Oscar Wilde, who introduced him to poetry and contemplating life's big questions. Joel is the oldest brother. And the way Trent sees it, the choice he made to not go the way of so many in his neighborhood at the time wasn't even one he intentionally made himself. It was Joel's. And um, for whatever reason, reasons I cannot explain, he decided to flip from the world we were from, which was, you know, genuinely sort of, you know, a world of criminality and kind of, you know, certain times, like people who were real dangerous dudes. And uh, and he just decided to not go down that path. And, and I think if he chose to go down that path, I worship that dude. If he chose to go down that path, I would have followed him every step of the way because he is bloody, he was bloody Daniel Day-Lewis to me. He's like, he's like God. He's like De Niro. Joel would pull Trent up if he ever did anything dodgy. And so because of Joel's choice, Trent's trajectory shifted a bit away from drugs and juvenile detention. But something else had to happen before that day in 2000 could change his life forever. He had to figure out how to turn the one thing he was good at, this gift he says the universe gave him, this inexplicable ability to write, into something that could actually break down the invisible wall he felt separated his housing commission life from the rest of Brisbane. This part was tricky. At 17, Trent is much like he is now. He's charismatic, blue-eyed, floppy brown hair. He's curious, and he's that kind of super earnest guy who's actually interested in other people's stories. He has some good English teachers who encourage his writing, but life at home is chaotic. Not a lot of headspace for studying algebra when your mind is full of actual problems. Because I just spent my entire high school life looking out the window like and dreaming and just just accessing parts of my life because a lot of the time you're kind of, you're actually just trying to process the shit that's going on in your house the night before. And so you're kind of really doing some deep thinking, but you're not really thinking about the maths that's in front of you. And, and that really cost me on a sort of academic level. Trent left school with an OP16, a score not good enough to get him into any of the journalism programs at universities in Brisbane. But he's steadfast in his belief that he will be able to write his way out of his statistical fate. So he goes to a uni in Toowoomba to take some journalism courses, moves into a share house full of artists who paint murals on the walls inside. He drinks a bit and smokes a bit. 
And all the while, he stays focused on his classes, making sure his internal compass isn't straying too off course. His biggest worry, one he still has today, is that he'll somehow find his way back to that original path that was laid out for him. Do I have certain um, DNA characteristics that that um, will will take me down a road I don't want to go down? And uh, and at twenty, that's all I'm worried about. And I'm just kind of I'm just always checking myself and just going, ah, am I smoking too much? Am I drinking too much? Am I going down that road? Because like he eventually gets into this journalism program at QUT, the Queensland University of Technology, along the Brisbane River in the CBD. There, he meets someone who is crucial to understanding what he's capable of. Christina Olson is one of his tutors. Just honestly, she's one of the great Brisbane writers and a novelist now of great renown. Um, and back then, she just happened to be one of the greatest feature writers in Brisbane. Not Christina just- mentors Trent and encourages him to use the struggles from his past to bolster his journalism. I was never ashamed of them, but I just didn't talk about them just because I just I carried it around like a sort of a little gold nugget inside me that I sort of, it was weird, my thoughts on all that stuff. I'd sort of use it as some sort of an internal thing. Like you can use it two ways. You can use it as an empowering nugget or you can use it as your great excuse for being a dick. You know what I mean? You can sort of, so you're not allowed, you're not allowed, simply not allowed to use that stuff as your excuse. He learns to draw on some of his hard times to tell stories that his more privileged peers may have trouble telling. Here's where all of that stuff started to come in and help me. One day, Christina gives the class an assignment. Write 2,000 words on an interesting Queensland character. So who do I get onto? I get onto the most interesting man in my life. My my dad, Noel Dalton, who's since moved from Brackenridge, he's gone to move in this housing commission block of flats in Bribey Island, right? Like one hour's drive north. And, um, and he's living with these Steinbeckian cannery row like drunks and um, fishermen and mud crabbers and just rogues and just men connected to really, really interesting things. And I said, like, Dad, um, can you help me out? And he goes, oh, you gotta, you got to interview Al across the road. And I'm like, who's Al? He's like, oh, he's this drunk, but he's like, back in the day, he was like this brilliant boxer and he was like famous tent boxer for Fred Brophy's travelling tent boxers. And... Um, I go up to Bribe, interview Al, and, you know, amazing. It's sort of almost life-changing. Right then I was reading a lot of Steinbeck and a lot of sort of books like Cannery Row and The Grapes of Wrath and a bit of a lot of Hemingway as well and just really getting into this idea that the same way Steinbeck did, he looked at these people around his world and saw them as wondrous creatures, not, not as anything to be sort of to, to be laughed at or whatever, but just to be seen as something beautiful. Trent hands in the piece for Christina to mark, and what she writes down on the bottom of the page bulldozes the invisible wall. She gives him something he didn't have before, direction and a goal. She said, Trent, you are meant to be a magazine journalist. And it was, I didn't know, I didn't know that. I just knew I liked reading long-form journalism. I didn't even know that that was even a thing, long-form journalism, but it was so beautiful of her to do that. So when the widely circulated Brisbane News asked QUT for the names of a few promising young journalists... Chris threw my name in the ring, and um, and so I owe her everything. And um, and But so Chris Olsen opened up that whole world, and she said, you're allowed to do this. Like, that, that message, it wasn't just advice it was permission and 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 saying this is yours too like the, Trent Dalton you can access that as well and don't think 
just because of where you're from or whatever means you don't have as much access to that as anyone else in Brisbane. So that brings us to January 10, 2000. The first day I start my life as a new version of myself. This day is truly a day of first for Trent. He's 20 years old. He's living closer to the city in Albion. He's roommates with his mom, who he's reconnecting with, and his brother, Jesse. And it is this day that Trent starts his brand new career as a journo with the Brisbane News. That job paid $26,000 a year. I was a grunt. I was uh, essentially a shit kicker role where I filled in the gaps on the magazine. And I thought this was the greatest opportunity on earth. And I, it was beyond my wildest dreams, that gig, because it was I, there, were, there was one thing I could do. And I still can't build a tent. I can't build a cupboard. I can't make a, a retaining wall. But one thing I can join together are sentences and um, and... That's one thing I could do. And here was a job where, uh, you know, it was, it was a job where people were paying me to, to write words. And that, that was deeply um, elevating for me. Now, if you're thinking this new job is the reason Trent says his life is changed forever on this day, you'd be right. But only partially. Something else happens on this day, which we'll get to soon. So it's his first day as a legit journo, and he feels like he's been dropped into this foreign world of smart, cultured, and well-dressed people. There's structure and order and espresso. The editor of the magazine invites him to lunch with the editorial team at a cafe in New Farm. Trent, who has yet to try an avocado, whose diet still consists of mostly Golden Circle canned goods, is about to order his very first coffee. And everyone went around the table as this waiter made our orders. And they went flat white, flat white, flat white. And I said, I'll, I'll have a coffee um, with some milk. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I would learn later that's essentially a flat white. And, uh, and, uh, but I was just so out of my depth. So he's chatting away with his new colleagues around the table when a woman walks in. And he doesn't know it yet, but she will become the other reason this is the day his future really changes. There was a space next to me and I could clear, it was clear that like basically the table hadn't been filled with all the people that were coming. And there was probably eight or so people and there was a space free next to me and, and I was like, oh, I wonder who's going to sit here. And then um, this, this girl comes from my right, she just appears and she is really striking, like really striking to me. And she looked like Tony Piran from E Street. I don't know if you remember E Street. Really huge show in the you know late 80s, early 90s. And um, She has thick brown hair and is wearing an emerald green top. It sort of made those green eyes bloody shimmer. And, it, and just this smile, right, that when she smiled, her whole sort of top left lip sort of curls a bit. And then I was immediately kind of struck by her. And then... She sat down, she went around, said hello to everyone, round, 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 and sat down in this empty seat. That woman is Fiona Franzman, a sub-editor at Brisbane News. And she begins asking Trent questions about himself and really listens to his answers. After that lunch, Trent was smitten. He goes home at the end of the workday, his very first as a paid journalist, He's pretty sure the girl he's met is going to play a role in his future, but he's got to capture her heart first. 
coming up after a quick break. The rock star who helps Trent get the girl of his dreams and the unsung hero who encouraged him to become the writer and the man he is today. is proudly presented by Museum of Brisbane, who are central to conversations about the evolving life of Brisbane, its histories and contemporary cultures. Located in the heart of Brisbane on Level 3 of City Hall, visit us next time you're in town, museumofbrisbane.com.au. Museum of Brisbane is proud to present Sunny, a new biannual lifestyle magazine celebrating Brisbane and its people. Sunny looks at what's happening in our city, unearths cultural gold, explores our history, and reveals the contemporary, cosmopolitan, and confident city Brisbane is today. Grab a copy of Sunny today at sunnymagazine.com. That's S-U-N-N-I-E magazine.com. Become an MOB member to be the first to receive the latest issue of Sunny, as well as pre-sale access and exclusive invitations, discounts at MOB shop, and much more. Visit museumofbrisbane.com.au to find out more. So nine months pass and Trent's affection for Fiona has turned into a full-blown crush. But he sees her as being out of his league. He adores her for lots of reasons, like how she stayed back that one time after everyone left the office to give him the definitive lesson on where to place apostrophes. And he would go out of his way to chat with her. So he loved that they happened to hop off at the same Bowen Hills train station to get to work. She would hop off and, and I remember days where she'd be like 100 metres ahead of me because she's on the other end of the train, right? And I'd Bowen Hills train station, as everyone will know, he's been on it. It's got massive concrete steps. And I'd, I'd run, sprint up those steps to catch up with this girl, right? And then, and then have to spend the next 50 metres going, <laughs> how, how are you doing? How you going, Fiona? How's things? She's like, yeah, good, good, good. You know, how's your night last night? And, and, uh, and It's now September, and Trent gets free tickets to see the iconic Brisbane band Powderfinger perform their latest album, Odyssey No. 5. It's at the newly opened Powerhouse, a renovated pre-war brick building turned arts and cultural space along the Brisbane River in New Farm. It was a hot ticket. Powderfinger was huge then, and Trent and a few other people from Brisbane News scored tickets as a perk of the job. Trent's 21 now and still committed to the grunge look. He rocks up to the powerhouse in blue corduroy pants, long hair, a secondhand t-shirt, and... Black Chuck Taylors. Black Chuck Taylors, no doubt. That was just the look. He walks inside and spots Fiona. When the show ends, they head out the back. Trent smokes a cigarette, they have a beer, and Fiona starts talking about the notion of having one true love, like how maybe she's done with that and how there are people who live very fulfilled lives without settling down with one person. And, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like totally just this puppy dog just going, yeah, yeah, right, I know. When secretly it's like, man, I think I've met my bloody one true love. And she's standing right in front of me holding a beer in her hand and beers run out. 
and uh, I go get some more in this sort of um, kind of main area of this of this powerhouse where all these people were. And he spots Bernard Fanning, the lead singer of Powderfinger. Trent knows Fiona is a huge fan, and I'm like, man, here's my chance to really impress Fiona and sh- and do something really sweet and grand. So he's like, I know, maybe I can get his autograph for her. Uh, I've got nothing to sign though. I'm looking around, looking around, and I look on the walls of the Brisbane powerhouse, and there's all these. Odyssey number five posters. And I just discreetly, well, hopefully no one was watching, just rip one of these posters down off the wall. He rolls it up and makes his way toward Bernard Fanning, who's standing at the bar, flanked by music execs and lots of just beautiful people. I squeeze through this crowd and it's like, excuse me, Bernard, it's, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, you know, you don't know me, whatever, um, but I'm just wondering... If you could do me a favour, see, there's this girl out on the landing that I really dig. I just think she's really amazing and she really loves you. She thinks you're amazing. And I'm thinking if, if, um, if I can get an autograph from you, then, then she can, I can get a bit of your reflected amazing and, uh, and she might sort of start to like me and I might be able to work up the courage a bit more to tell her my true feelings and tell her the, the, the truth of how I feel about this girl, which is... Um, you know, I, can't, I think I kind of love her. And, uh, and then, and, uh, and he's like, you can't just tear these posters down off the wall. They're like our special Odyssey number five posters. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, but I'm doing it for this girl. And it's really sweet. And he really likes that. And he says, give it here. And he grabbed this pen and he just scribbles something on it. It's really dark in this powerhouse. He just rolls it back up and he goes, go give that to her right now. And I'm like, thanks, Bernard. I go back out. And I'm like, hey, Fee, I got this for you. And, uh, and she grabs this poster unrolls it and it says Fiona this boy really really likes you and I'm like oh shit and uh, and then um and and uh you know and the, the cool thing about that is I didn't have to share my true feelings this rock god shared them for me and as it turned out she liked him back and they agreed to go on a first date another concert this time it was to watch Sting perform at the Boondle Entertainment Center and there there, oh, this is so ridiculous. This just gets, do you want to hear this stuff? Uh, well, there I said this stupid line and this line's become gospel now in, in um, three words. I said, I've leaned over to Fee and I said, no, I can't, it's too embarrassing. Well, I leaned over to Fee and I said, sway with me. Can you believe that? It's the most embarrassing, God, it felt so cheesy just saying that out loud. It was so ridiculous, but I sort of was just sort of going, and then I put a hand, my hand on hers. And we're like, and we started swaying. I know. They have their first kiss outside Trent's place on Thurlow Street. It's a leafy, quiet residential neighborhood in Newmarket. Six years later, they return to that same exact spot. This time in a limousine Trent surprised Fiona with to propose. And the funny thing was this this limo, when I'm asking Fee, like I got down on my hands and knees and literally there's like a gutter and there's like a stormwater drain just there and stuff. But it was perfect and she loved it. And uh, it was right, you know, it was right for us. But this the funny thing, this limo driver, you know, he's taken a chance to like hop out. He stands about 20 metres away just darbing up, just like... As I'm doing the like, Fee, it's been six of the most amazing years of my life. And he's like... You know, it's like, you know, it's just like, just brilliant. It's just classic stuff. And we're just, oh man, it's just, you know, and, but it's beautiful. And, and it's just been the story of our lives where the story and this city, this city has just been such a part of our relationship. 
The backdrop of Trent's story is Brisbane, and he's lived all over it, from where he started out with his mom in Dara, southwest of the city, to Bracken Ridge in the north with his dad, to Albion, just 5Ks out from the CBD. Trent has seen the many sides of this city, the patchwork of suburbs and the people within them, and he wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So Fiona and Trent get married, have kids, and in 2017, he finally starts to write a novel, one he'd been wanting to write since he was like 20. And it's here, at this point in his life, about 18 years later, that the real magnitude of that day back in 2000 sinks in, the day he meets Fiona. Because if he hadn't met her, if he had got a job at some other paper or ended up at a glass factory, his two girls would never have been born. It's his wife and his daughters who teach him about the lightness in life, the gentleness. His life at 38 was a far cry from the testosterone-fueled home he'd grown up in. And so when he goes to write his novel, it ends up being very different from the one he'd been kicking about for so long. And, and that book would have been so angsty. And I did write a couple of chapters and they were so angsty and so miserable and so um, kind of just unreadable. Like and woe is me kind of Woe is me. Pull out the violins, like misery memoir, you know. It's like, please, man. And, uh, but, but it was becoming a dad that showed me the very power of that book, which is love, hope, all those wonderful things about family, you know, and, and I, I needed to I need to meet those two two girls and meet my wife to work out the other side of of that book and therefore the other side of life that that there is darkness and there is absolutely light. Don't get him wrong, Boy Swallows Universe is still a novelistic take on some of the gritty crime and drug ridden elements of Trent's actual boyhood. But there's this underlying tone of wonder and optimism that makes it the best-selling novel it is. It took a lot of people in sliding door moments to get to that day in January, and the life that followed. His brother Joel, his mentor Christina, his wife Fiona, and of course his other brothers, his mum whom he adores. But there's one person who quietly guided Trent pretty much his whole life, like this constant soundtrack that motivated Trent to keep going. His father, Noel Dalton, the man people often blamed for putting Trent and his brothers in what they figured was a position of hopelessness. That guy had, on paper, had so many things that um, my teachers at school had to, you know, would question and so forth, but they never understood that he's just like, he was there every second of the day. Like he shouldn't have been there, should have been out doing stuff, but he was really just at home smoking drum cigarettes and reading novels. And uh, But that made for an amazing dad, aside from the nights when he's on the piss. And uh, but, but when he wasn't on the piss, that guy's the most extraordinary human being you could ever hang out with. It's natural to focus on those drastic sliding doors types of junctions, where choosing left or right clearly results in a very different future. I mean, they make for great stories. But I think that maybe the less dramatic, slow-burning actions by ourselves or others around us are what sustain us and make all the rest possible. When Trent was a kid, his dad would tell him all the time not to follow in his footsteps, that he'd be so angry if he did. And that honesty, that humility, is something Trent admired in his dad. His dad pushed him to become something more. He was the one going, what next? Keep going keep going I think you've got things in you that I would never have believed you know what I mean and he he wrote me this note um 
uh, and it said, it said, you are a revelation to me, Trent. Um, you have done all the right things. He carried that note around in his wallet until it started to fray. People writing my old man off back in the day because he drank a bit or whatever just had no idea, you know, no idea of the wisdom of the man and, and the love he had and, and, and just how much he was able to, to inspire me to do everything. I'm only here because of notes like that. The long-form pieces Trent continues to write now about the lives of ordinary people who actually have remarkable stories to tell show his readers that all of us have many sides, just like his dad and his Steinbeckian mates on Bribey Island. We are not one thing. We are so many more colours than black and white and, uh, you know, and, and you can never judge anyone, but, you know, by how good their front yard looks, you know, and like our house in Brackenridge, it had grass to as high as the windows, but uh, but it said that, that grass said nothing of the love that was inside that house, just the same way as a pretty garden and a beautiful place in Ascot says nothing about the pain that a woman, a mum of four might be going through in her daily life that nobody knows about, and that absolutely is the truth of this amazing Amazing city. When Trent's journalism career took off, Noel made subtle but impactful gestures to show he was proud. Every Saturday, if I had a story in, I would wait for my old man's text. And, and that guy texted like Clint Eastwood. He, he, t- he, sh- he texted these short sentences like, nailed it, or um, um, you got that one, and, uh, or, um, you know, on ya, you know, on ya, just full stop. And, uh, and a text, as short as it was from my old man like that, was like Obama calling up and going, here's your bloody freedom medal, you've just changed the world. You know what I mean? It's like that's how powerful that, that was. Trent's dad died in 2015 from emphysema, three years before Boy Swallows Universe was published. The death of his dad crushed him. The man who encouraged him to keep going wasn't there to see his son's first novel displayed at a bookshop next to Tolkien, Noel's favorite writer. But Trent has found his dad really hasn't left. In fact, he's pretty sure his old man helped him write his latest novel, All the Shimmering Skies. He's, he's, he's just with me, you know. He's like, I've got this bloody... I got this stonefish. My old man was a mud crabber on Broby Island, and he caught a stonefish, and uh, he named it Keef, like Keef, like um, K double E F, because like British, like Keef, Keef. It's like Mick Jagger saying Keef because he loved the Rolling Stones, like Keef, Keef, and uh, and uh, and he felt that this stonefish had a face like Keith Richards, and this thing now exists in this bottle of preservation this jar of preservation liquid and at, at the funeral up at Bribey Island we had this stonefish keef on top of dad's wooden casket just looking out at the at the crowd and I became custodian of keef and um and all through the writing of both of my novels I'd, I'd bloody um turn to keef and ask him like hey how, do, how does that sentence sound keef and uh you know how does um you know is that too hammy am I trying to do Hemingway there keef and keef obviously says nothing but in my head it's my old man saying hey just on you Nailed it. Got that one. Where I Belong is brought to you by Museum of Brisbane. For more on this episode and the rest of the Where I Belong series, head to museumofbrisbane.com.au and click Watch and Listen under the Explore tab. 
You'll find show notes, episode transcripts, and links to more resources. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, recommend us to your friends, subscribe to the show, and go listen to the rest of the series wherever you get your podcasts. Where I Belong is written and produced on Turrbal and Yagura land by me, Wendy Love. Museum of Brisbane acknowledges the traditional owners of this land and pays its respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Thanks to Dylan Ransom Hughes for doing the final mix on this episode. Special thanks to Louise Martin Chu. Thank you.